because he's reinforcing or reifying that idea that his apostleship is from Jesus Christ. It's, it's uh, a calling on his life and an authority given to him by God. Welcome everybody to Evangel Academy, our third one uh, over the past little bit here. Um, super excited to jump into the book of Galatians. We're going to be doing kind of a deep dive into that uh, over the next four weeks. And so um, really excited for that. Thanks for joining and, and just being part of learning together because uh, that really is my heart for these things. It's not that necessarily that I am imputing knowledge upon you, um, but I firmly and fully believe that we have knowledge that we can learn together. And so this is going to be a journey that I want us to take uh, in community together. And so it's going to be a time not just of me lecturing you, although that's maybe like part of it, uh, but also a time of discussion, a time of hearing your thoughts, time of hearing your wisdom and your understanding, um, because I think that that brings a sense of um, three-dimensionality to, to learning, three-dimensionality, which I don't think is a word, but to scripture. And so that's going to be part of it. But before we jump into anything, let's quickly pray. God, we thank you so much that you have given us your word to instruct us, to inspire us, to transform us and shape us. And so, God, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would be the one that teaches us tonight, that you would be the one who speaks to us, that you would be the one who continues to journey alongside of us in our discipleship, in our learning about you. Uh, thank you, God, that you gave us a way to know you, to know the way that you are, to know the way that you work, to know how we should respond and be in light of that. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to be here. Holy Spirit, we ask that you to illuminate truth in our lives um, and that you would continue to guide and speak to all of us together uh, because we know that you are the spirit of truth and you are a spirit of unity. So God, we thank you. We commit all of this time to you and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, to jump in, uh, I've titled this Christian Liberty Studies in Galatian, The Book of Contrast. Um, and so as I was doing some study, uh, over this past week and, and in preparation for this course, a commentator said that this is a book of contrast. And I thought that was incredibly true of it. And something that I just kind of a, a picture of it that I didn't quite see in terms of the, the book of Galatians. But after I said that, I couldn't not see it. You know, when you have those moments where like you buy a new car and then you see that car everywhere you go. Well, as I saw that person comment that this is a book of contrast, I began to see it everywhere. Um, and so... Part of the reason why I put that picture there is because I think it shows a good contrast of actually what the book of Galatians is trying to, to communicate and convey, that in one side of the contrast, it will bring something that deteriorates, that takes away from life, that causes things to grow dry. Um, but the other side of the contrast that we find that Paul is bringing correction to, that Paul is bringing um, some guiding to in terms of the gospel, is one that brings that verdant green life. And so there's kind of this like tipping point in the book of Galatians that Paul is uh, tremendously worried about. And so I think that the contrast that we find ourselves in in the book of Galatians will be one that either will bring kind of the drying out of our faith or the refreshing in life and vitality of it. And so this really is a book of contrast, but the contrasts really do matter. And that's really what Paul is kind of saying in this whole book, is that the contrast that he's bringing to maybe the the permutation of what truth actually was matters. And so uh, I'm excited to jump into it because I think it teaches us a lot about um, what we should value as followers of Jesus and how we should live our life in light of it. So I want to do a quick overview uh, in terms of our next four weeks, and I apologize because that's very small, so I will read it to you. Uh, this week we're going to be doing an introduction. So we're going to be going over just a couple of like very broad 30,000 foot view scope of Galatians. Um, and then we're be, gonna be jumping into Galatians chapter one and two. Uh, the next week is justification and inheritance, uh, which sounds very intense um, and it kind of is, but it's also not. Uh, it actually shows a lot about, um, you know, where we place our identity, where we find our, our uh, worth in life. The next one is the role of the spirit in our lives and in revealing truth. And then finally, we have final instructions in Galatians 6. So to be honest, it's kind of hard to um, delineate Galatians into like little tinier parts because they really, Paul references back and forth between uh, chapters. And so 
it is a little bit difficult to delineate. I mean, part of the reason is because this is a letter, and so in epistolary writing, uh, it would have been read all at once, and so they would have heard from chapter, well, chapter, air quotes, they didn't have chapters, but from chapter one all the way to chapter six in one setting. So they'd be kind of find the flow a little bit easier than we do, um, but I think this is kind of the best way that I, I could kind of chop it into pieces. And so that's how we're gonna jump into it um, over the next four weeks. Now, like I said before, I want this to be a time of discussion. And so that means at any time. So there will be some times that we have dedicated to discussion. But if you have a question, if I am not making sense, if you have something that you maybe disagree with and wanna discuss, uh, feel free to just throw up a hand, interrupt me, throw something at me if I'm not paying attention to you, uh, do something to get my attention. Um, I'm gonna do my very best to repeat the questions so that those who are watching online um, are able to kind of hear our questions. I'll try and summarize as best I can some of our discussion, um, but I want this to be a chance for us to dialogue together. So I wanna go over how I organize notes. Um, and the reason why I do this is because I'm neurotic. And so it helps me to know, or it helped me in college to know how my professors took notes or organized their notes, um, because it just helped me be more organized and it helped me just learn and understand better. So the first top that you'll see is the main topic. Uh, if there's a letter, it will be indented as a subtopic. And then there's gonna be bullet points within that subtopic. And then if it's indented again, it's a subpoint related to the current bullet point. So that's kind of how I organize my notes. Um, and so that will hopefully help just guide you through our time uh, to just know how I will organize it so that you know when we move on to a next section, when we move on to a next subtopic. Um, and so I just hope that kind of helps you to like, in your mind, kind of have a form for the way that I'm going to just move through our notes. Finally, we're also gonna be doing something called zooming in and zooming out. Um, because my hope for this study is for it to be a time that we take a deep dive into the book of Galatians, but my hope as we leave this time is that you will be able to retain the broad concepts of Galatians to kind of help your mind with quick reference, um, rather than remembering all of the minutiae of this book. Um, that's why we take those notes, is so that you can reference some of those uh, more like nitty-gritty parts of it. But my hope is actually that we just have a time where we can have like a broad idea of like, all right, this is what Galatians 1 says, and 2, and 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, um, so that you can kind of quick reference it in conversation, in your study. Um, and so what I'm hoping is that you'll have the notes to be able to find kind of the, the grittiness of the book as we deep dive, but also that you'll kind of have a moment to be able to just, in a broad sense, be able to quick reference in your mind some of the, the themes throughout the book of Galatians. Um, and so it's hopeful that you'll have like kind of a retention of the broad themes. Zooming in will be a time of discussion where we kind of focus on a particular thing. At the end of each chapter, we're gonna zoom out. And that gives you an opportunity to write down some key themes for you to remember. So I'm not necessarily gonna give those to you and say like, this is an outline of Galatians, but I'm gonna let you do that so that you can remember for yourself some of those themes that you want to know. So we're gonna jump into an introduction. So Paul obviously wrote a tremendous amount of letters to people all over kind of uh, Eurasia in general. And so they were ordered in a chronology in terms of what is in the canon or in the Bible. And so there are many debates about the chronology of his writing, about when, um, about where even they were all written. We are gonna typically take what is the traditional view of the chronology of his, his letter writing. And so with that in mind, it is likely that Paul wrote this letter in about AD 47 or 48. Now, like I said, there is a debate of the chronology of all of his writings of letters, but also particularly with the writing of Galatians. So there's the debate between whether it was AD 47 to 48-ish or AD 55. Now, there's a lot of important things that happen between those two uh, time periods of writing. So in the debate of chronology, one of the most strong arguments that it's written at an earlier date, AD 47 to 48, is that there's no mention of the Jerusalem Council at all in Paul's writing of Galatians. Now the Jerusalem Council was this moment where Paul had to go to this council of people to defend uh, all that he was doing. 
and particularly defend his sharing of the gospel to Gentiles. And so this would have been a moment where he kind of brings uh, some clarity to what he's doing. And so it would have been really helpful for Galatians. So he likely would have referenced it if it had already happened. Um, so some people say that this is an argument from silence, which um, sometimes isn't a great argument to have. Um, but lots of scholars will say it's actually a deafening silence. In that, because there's no reference, it's so deafening that uh, the Jerusalem Council hadn't happened yet, and so likely it has an earlier writing. And so in the whole chronology of his letter writing, this is his second letter that he wrote. Um, and it really is, I think, actually very foundational for how he writes more of his letters afterwards, because it really is primarily a defense of the gospel, is what Galatians is. And so um, I think it's, it's interesting that it's one of his first ones written, because I think it informs a lot of his other letters. Um, Depending on who you ask, they would see that Paul has um, like letter pairs where two of his letters are kind of thematically similar. And so, for instance, Galatians and Romans would be a thematic pair in terms of their idea of justification, their idea of by faith alone um, rather than works of the law, how that happens in the life of, of a believer. And so, Galatians is the second one, and so it, it does, I think, inform a lot of his other writing in terms of his defense of the gospel. So that's kind of the, a really like, very broad view of his chronology. So the next thing we're going to go over is the key themes found in the book of Galatians. So the very first one, and I think um, primarily, is actually the defense of Paul's authority as an apostle. Um, because there are a lot of characters that we find in the book of Galatians. We find the Galatians themselves. We find Paul, the people that he's writing alongside of, but also we find this group called the Judaizers. And what they were was a group of, I'm not going to give it too, too, too much of it away, but they're a group of people that were very much questioning Paul's apostleship and thereby questioning his authority to even share the gospel, write about the gospel, bring it to the Gentile people, um, at all. And so primarily this is a defense of his authority as an apostle, because without that, none of the other things that he write about, wrote about would matter. Um, but there is also the themes of faith versus works, of flesh versus spirit, and of law versus grace. And so when you see those key themes, there's a lot of verses, right? One versus the other. And so it's easy to begin to see that this is truly a book of contrast. And so those are some of the key themes that we find. And like I said, with the key themes, um, is that it's not uh, as linear as some of his other writings are. He kind of flips back and forth between arguments here and there. And so we'll see those contrasts happen all throughout the book um, and not necessarily in like linear or chronological fashion either. And then in terms of setting the stage, there is a question of which Galatia. Um, and what I mean by that is there were two um, understandings of what Galatia was in the ancient world. So there were a group of Galatians who lived in the northern part of what is now Turkey um, that lived there, and they were kind of a people group or an ethnic group called Galatians. Now, if Paul wrote it in the north, it would have necessitated that later writing date of 55 AD because he just never got there until later. But... On the other hand, there was also a Roman province called Galatia that extended into southern Turkey and included Antioch, uh, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And so Paul evangelized this part, the Roman province of Galatia, in about AD 47 to 48. Now, if you remember what I just said about when he wrote this letter, um, he wrote this letter about the same time. And so they quickly were evangelized and then quickly kind of begun to lose their way. Lose their way. And so because it's uh, very clear that Paul evangelized this part of the world in the Roman province at that time, it is again more likely uh, that his letter was written at an earlier date. And then finally, just as like a practice for Paul, um, while he was a, uh, a Jew who had very, very high standard in um, terms of Pharisaical training, he also was Roman. Um, which is kind of an interesting part about him. So he kind of managed both of those things, that he was a Roman citizen um, by, by heritage and not necessarily birth. Um, 
but he was also a Pharisaical Jew. So because of his Roman heritage, he very much often referred to places by their Roman names as the empire named them. And so the empire named that region Galatia. And so it's likely that in him typically using Roman names, that again, it strengthens that argument that he would have written this letter to the southern part of Galatia, necessitating an earlier writing date as well. Um, and then there are people that are like, this doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter to the overall theme, um, but it does matter to the uh, historicity of the writing of the book, and I think to the verifiability that we have being so far separated over you know, thousands of years of time. Um, and so I think it is actually important to know which Galatia, because which Galatia informs what time, which informs kind of some of our understanding of the historicity of it. Any questions about that introduction? I didn't want to go too far in this because we did talk a lot about uh, like letter writing and the process of that and all that in, in previous ones of Evangel Academy, so I didn't want to like repeat too much, but felt like it was important to kind of give you a very 30,000 foot view of uh, the book of Galatians. Last questions. Great. Uh, just as we start into the actual book of it, uh, my encouragement to you or, or a way that will be easy for you is if you actually just have your Bible open in front of you, if you have one, whether on your phone or something else, um, because it does help to just be able to quickly read where we're at in some of our notes. Um, and so I'd encourage you that it will help you follow through. Um, a, a secondary encouragement is if you haven't yet to read through Galatians, just to maybe refresh your memory, um, that could be homework that you take home with you. Because it will kind of help in terms of uh, our reference, because we're not gonna be reading each verse, we're more gonna be referencing them in general. Um, but before we start in our greeting, which is chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, we're zooming in with a question. Um, so I want you to read through the, the greeting in Galatians, which is Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And I want you to take a moment to see what are some things that you observe about this particular greeting. Um, so read it through, pull out some themes that you observe um, from it. as you read that greeting, what are some things that you observed in it? Yep, that's right. Yeah, so he begins by defending his apostleship, which um, is a clue that we'll talk about in just a moment. Yeah, so he talks about him being an apostle. Yeah, he summarizes the whole gospel within that short greeting. Um, important, again, another clue. Uh, any other things that you observed from it? Yeah, he seems very much um, like business focused. He's not as, uh, I guess I would say, friendly. Um, in this greeting. And so, yeah, no, that's, yeah, right down to business. That's a good read on it. Yep. Yeah, so those are all great suggestions. Um, so it can be easy sometimes when we read these to be like, all right, well, Paul was writing a letter. There is this way in the Greco-Roman world that you would write a letter. And so it's likely that he's just writing this. And so who really cares about it anyways? It's like if you were to analyze the like greeting of your email, it'd be like, well, there's no real purpose to like me determining that, but actually there is, um, because Paul's greetings in his letters give us a hint of a lot of things about what's going to be happening in that letter. Um, so in this particular one, Paul's greeting in this letter gives us a hint of the severity of the letter and some of the context in which he is writing to the audience. So the first thing that we see in verses 1 to 2, which is uh, VV, is just a shortened ver version of verses. Um, is the senders, which is identified as Paul, of course, and the brothers. So it says Paul and apostle, blah, 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 and all the brothers who are with me. Um, and so this is likely people who were in Paul's traveling party, which included um, Barnabas and a bunch of other people. And this inclusion of that and the brothers is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, people one of the things that Paul's defending is that people were not accepting him generally. They had known of Paul's past. They had known about um, the fact that he persecuted the, the early church. And so they were rejecting him on that basis of his like, past character. But ad additionally, is they're also doubting uh, his apostleship 
and his partnership with those who have already been part of spreading the gospel. And so the fact that he was with Barnabas, somebody that was known, somebody that would have been um, pastoral, is again bringing a level of credibility to who he is. And so uh, people didn't accept him before, and so I think he includes that piece of and the brothers uh, because he wants to add some credibility to who he is. Now, like we've already realized, is that he starts off by calling himself an apostle. Um, And so Paul's apostleship, he says here, is not a result of man's appointment or their approval, but that of Jesus and God the Father. And again, this is an incredibly important um, piece to talk about because much of the combatants that that he's speaking to in Galatians, the Judaizers, which we'll clarify a little bit more what they were all about, Part of the reason why they were bringing this sense of uh, contest to Paul's apostleship, his ability to spread the gospel, was because the Judaizers were winning converts back to Judaism, essentially, to build their um, power and to build their authority that Paul is beginning to insinuate is, is actually built on man and not on God. So that's why he says that it's particularly from Jesus Christ is because that's where his authority is coming from, where the Judaizers uh, were leading people astray and building actually their own kingdom and authority there. And so that's why he kind of adds that as well. But then Paul's affirmation of Christ's resurrection from the dead is based upon his own experience. Um, This introduction to this power for Paul was his experience of the risen Savior on the Damascus Road at that conversion in Acts 9. And so Paul's identification of the source of his authority from the outset was, like I said, imperative at this point in the letter. He needed to, like, start that off very businesslike right away. Um, Because, again, his goal was to counter those who felt that they were sent from Jerusalem, um, commissioned to preach the Judaizing message. And so the addressees in this are the church at Galatia. Um, And again, like we said, in southern Galatia. So... In verse 3, we see Paul, Paul's characteristic greeting. He has this in every single one of his letters, grace and peace. He says that grace and peace to you. He says that in every single one of his letters, it is, uh, that's a diversion from typical Greco-Roman uh, letter writing. They would have some type of greeting, but of course it wouldn't be uh, the grace and peace of God that he is greeting them with. Um, and so that's just his characteristic greeting. But he does have a repetition in there. So he says, grace to you and peace, which sometimes is all he says, but then he says, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's important again, because he's reinforcing or reifying that idea that his apostleship is from Jesus Christ. It's it's, uh, a calling on his life and an authority given to him by God. And I think it's so interesting when we look at this um, particular claim to his authority of apostleship, that it's Jesus giving it to him, that it's Jesus who called him. Um, Because I think in pastoral ministry, or I think uh, as Christian leaders generally, it can be really easy to pull the authority card as a trump card. Um, But as we see, Galatians is is a defense of the gospel, the most central and important part of our faith. Um, And that is actually one of the only times that Paul explicitly uh, speaks to his apostolic authority on the basis of uh, this. So a lot of times in other of his letters, he'll say, an apostle and a servant of Christ, an apostle and a slave to Jesus. He only talks about himself being an apostle here. Um, And so I think that this is an important thing for us to realize, uh, to, to pull the authority card only when the gospel message itself is being threatened. The temptation, I think, is to pull that card when we're feeling threatened, when perhaps our ministry or something that we're leading is feeling threatened, or when we are. Um, But I think that it's important for us to realize and recognize that pulling that authority card uh, is something that should only be done when we're defending the gospel. Not ourselves, not that ministry that we worked hard to do, but the gospel itself. Um, It's not a trump card for our failures. It's a trump card in in a very, like, broad sense, uh, that we use only, I think, for the defense of the gospel. And so I think that's very interesting that Paul would only pull that explicit card as he defends the gospel. So then in verse 4, he focuses on Christ's work. So to deliver us from from sin and the present evil age, um, because the issue is the work of Christ in redemption. 
which is all according to God's express purpose. And so this is again important because it's central to the gospel. And like Wally said, uh, he does give the gospel in a nutshell. And what he's saying is, I could just give you that greeting and that's enough because I explained to you the gospel. And the gospel in, in a nutshell, like nothing more is required. We don't need to build anything upon the gospel itself. Now he does because he's Paul. Um, and there's some important things he needed to clarify what the gospel was. But nothing more truly is required when uh, we present the gospel. And then finally in verse 5, uh, he just gives a concluding doxology, uh, which is, that to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. A very classic doxology. Now I want to make one note of one thing that Paul omits in his greeting. He omits a moment of thanksgiving for the Galatians. Again, that's another clue that we can see that this is going to be a severe letter. Um, perhaps this is actually Paul's most severe letter that he's written across all that we find in Scripture is Galatians. Um, he gives no thankfulness for the Galatians in this moment. Um, in, his, in his introduction, usually he'll say, like, I'm so thankful for you because of this. Not there. Again, it's very business-minded. It's very down to business, um, which is a clue to the severity of this concern from Paul. Now, I don't want that to add a level of like fear for us, um, but what I see here is that Paul is doing all these things because he, care, he cares a lot about the gospel, um, and that truly is his, his focus. So we're going to jump in now to Paul's reason for writing, uh, which is in verses 6 to 10. So in verse 6, uh, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. So Paul here expresses a level of surprise, and not just like, oh, that's shocking. Like, it's almost disbelief. It's this being totally flabbergasted that the Galatians are beginning to have second thoughts about their faith. They are starting to abandon the one who called them. And that uh, the verb abandon, Paul uses the present continuous uh, verb tense, which means like you are and you are continuing to abandon uh, the one who called you, who is Jesus. And so he uses this continuous action that the Galatians are doing. And the problem here is that they are adopting what he would say is, air quotes, another gospel. And the word that he used there is heteros, uh, which means another of a different kind. So it's not like a replication that you take one and you're replicating as you were like sharing the gospel with other people. They're taking one of a different kind and beginning to share that one. So there's a sense of fundamental difference that the Galatians are being led astray by this other false gospel. And so that's why he uses that word heteros to mean another of a different kind. In verse 7, um, he says that this other gospel is actually nothing of the sort. It's not a gospel at all. It's not good news. It is a distortion of the true gospel. And so those who are attempting to convince them to this other gospel are said to disturb the peace and again distort the truth of the gospel. In verses 8 to 9, Paul's commitment to the gospel is so strong that he wants anyone who preaches otherwise to be censored in the strongest way. Like he, he is taking the strongest penalty that he could imagine for these people who are distorting the gospel. He uses the language of divine curse that will ultimately lead to these people's destruction. Um, we, we still use this word in our language today, anathema or anathema. Um, that's the word that he uses for divine curse. And so an anathema is like something that's really awful or something that's really averse in our lives. Um, and so Paul is saying that he is like almost disgusted that this gospel is being uh, permuted in a way that's, that's untrue. So what he's making an emphasis here on is that the gospel is far more important than the individual messengers themselves. And he includes himself in that as well. Um, and so he will always defend the gospel. It is of central importance to his life and to the lives of those that he shepherds as the, the pastor of these churches. And he says, hey, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the gospel. And so that's what we're combating here. He's not combating necessarily the people themselves. He's combating this gospel that's beginning to be another of a kind, um, that's beginning to lead people astray. In verse 10, he says, the adoption of this strain of false teaching is nothing less than a desire to please men, which is again what I meant about the Judaizing teachers. 
and to gain prominence and authority that builds up their authority on themselves or on a gospel that they've created. And he asserts that in this case, pleasing God and pleasing men are a mutually exclusive option. And so he's saying here, like, if I was seeking the approval of God, I'd give you whatever gospel makes you feel good about it or makes you feel good about yourself and props me up in the process. Uh, But he says, that's not what we're here for. It's not about us. It's about the gospel transforming our lives and not us building our own authority on something that we use to try and please other people with. So before we zoom in on our question, which we will throw up on the screen, I do just want to bring some clarity to who the Judaizers were, um, because it's important for us to understand. So the Judaizers came from Jerusalem, and they were people who came to Galatia and other places to essentially um, force Gentile converts to Christianity to... uh, become circumcised, and then also follow some of the Jewish law as part of their salvation. So Jewish converts to Christianity were beginning to allow um, their justification and the basis of their faith to come from their faith in Jesus, but then adding all of these food laws, circumcision, uh, some of their festivals as means of their justification for salvation. And so as these Gentile converts, who did not grow up, grow up uh, culturally Jewish, of course, they were converting to Christianity. And so the Judaizers were sent to try and add these things to their faith and belief in order to save them um, and as part of their salvation. And so they're being sent here and they're beginning, that's the, the beginning of uh, them kind of distorting that gospel that's leading these Gentiles astray because they're beginning to fall back into works-based uh, faith rather than um, like than faith in Jesus itself. And so that's kind of who the Judaizers were. They came from Jerusalem and were beginning to do this. Those are people that Paul is speaking against. So we're going to zoom in here in our question. Uh, the false gospel that the Judaizers were perpetuating in Galatia was that of Gentile converts must be circumcised to be saved, which is thereby converting Christians and, sorry, converting to Jewish Christians and keeping up the law. So my question to you, is what are some contemporary applications of a false gospel in our culture? Yeah, there's that idea that all roads lead to Jesus, that universalism. Mm -hmm. Or sorry, I guess all roads lead to salvation. Sorry, my my fault. Yeah, the me generation which, um, whose banners often speak your own truth. Um, I think that can that very quickly becomes challenging. Yeah, it's a good thought. Yeah, I think that wrestle that we have with our human nature versus our, our nature that we have in the spirit of a redeemed person, um, I think is always something that we will uh, be challenged with as we walk in that sanctification that happens over our whole lives. And so it can be easy in not a nefarious or intentionally um, like destructive way to kind of add some things that we feel like is you know, part of our justification, like uh, maybe what we do or who we are or what we um, have done in the past to earn some sense of goodness. Um, that's always an easy one to like add things that we don't even really realize are being added um, that aren't done necessarily to be malicious to ourselves or others, but um, that we just kind of have as blinders. Yeah, a nationalistic gospel. Um, some people call that Zionism, um, where there's this thought that of the New Jerusalem and that it's somehow there's this blending of faith and um, that the avenue of salvation is based on like political understanding and affiliation in some type of way. Um, yep, that's, that's true. That's a good one. One that I've seen that I think is particularly um, impactful on my generation and maybe some of the other ones uh, behind me is the social gospel without the holistic gospel. What I mean by that is a social gospel is one that would see the ushering in of God's kingdom and the salvation of people to be um, done by, by bringing uh, justice to those who are oppressed. Now, to clarify, Jesus was somebody who brought justice to those who were oppressed. So that is, in its nature, part of why Jesus came, to set the captives free, to proclaim freedom for the people. But when we have that be the basis of salvation, rather than that than a, like rather than adding a spiritual component of, uh, of still talking about sin and death and eternity, 
um, we need to have both of those together because what the social gospel will do is uh, very much downplay the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of eternity and the doctrine of, uh, of salvation in, in that sort of way. And they'll elevate in a way uh, the social aspect of it where like the ushering of God's kingdom comes by us bringing social reform, but the ushering of God's kingdom comes in by the spirit bringing transformation to people. Um, and so, and, and ultimately it's not, we, we aren't the ones who usher in God's kingdom. God is the one who ushers in God's kingdom. And so there's this social gospel without the holistic gospel that then says, well, my faith and my justification, the gospel is based on the reform that I bring to myself and others. Um, and it's basically just kind of a form of legalism in a different type of way that has great intentions. Of course, we want to see people uh, like not live in oppression. We want to see inequality be bridged, all of those things. We have to recognize that that is one piece where we also need to talk about the eternity that comes uh, in people's lives as well. Any other last ones that you would think of? I think we could talk about the prosperity gospel if we'd like to as well. Um, name it and claim it. Hallelujah. If you believe it, it will rain down from the sky. Yeah, so those are some of the things I think that we have that are not necessarily like people aren't coming to our church just to speak about converting to like, uh, like a Jewish law keeping um, in the same way, but we do have different gospels that are beginning to become different of another kind. Um, and so I think it's just important for us to know not to be combative and divisive with those people, but so that we can remember that we need to keep the main thing the main thing. All right, so we're going to move on to Paul's testimony and defense. So in verses 11 to 12, Paul says, as a servant of Christ, his gospel is not the same as that of false teachers, which he would equate to man's gospel, because his gospel found its source in Revelation. And he talks very much in this book about the Damascus Road experience that he has. Um, and this is actually one of mo uh, Paul's most biographical letters, as he gives a lot of his testimony in these first two chapters. Um, and so because his gospel is found in Revelation, as such, it had no human origin. And, and Paul's conversion was very dramatic. You know, he's walking on the road to Damascus. He's met by the Lord. He's blinded. He has to go find, like, a voice from heaven says, Paul, Paul, why are you perse persecuting me? So he has this very uh, revelatory conversion story. And I think he uses that to say that his gospel that he received from Jesus himself had no human origin, which again is combating those other gospels. In verses 13 to 17, uh, Paul again summarizes his conversion. Because Paul's life, and this is important, was rooted in the same Judaism whose influence he is currently battling. So he says, hey, I'm not just coming in from some like outsider perspective that's like observing what you're doing, Judaizers, and combating against it. I was that person. You know, he was one of the most zealous uh, persecutors of the church. And so he said that that former commitment that he had led him to try and destroy the church rather than build it up. And so he's saying like, hey, I've been there. That Paul was immersed in Pharisaic Judaism would have actually validated his opposition to the Judaizing teachers because he knew what he was talking about. You know, he was likely one of the most trained and the highest uh, authority in the Pharisaical Jewish tradition. Um, in verses 13 to 14, he says he was advancing, he was zealous, um, and so he was like the best of the best. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, and so uh, he's saying like, I know this stuff, I'm an expert in it, and so I have the authority now to oppose it as I've changed. So Paul's apostolic calling extended to before he was born, and it was realized at his Damascus Road calling, because it was there that God revealed Christ to him. And so he uses this testimony as a way to speak to his, again, authority to be able to push against the gospel, the false gospel that was being, uh, that was being spread. In verse 16b, he says, Paul's purpose was a proclamation of the gospel, but to the Gentiles. To further reinforce the revelatory nature of his experience and to marginalize the human influence, um, Paul didn't travel to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. He notes that in his... Um, in kind of some of his, his biography in this moment. Um, and he does that for a reason, because he didn't go meet with these apostles that would have, like, um, influenced his understanding of the gospel. He, he didn't travel to Jerusalem, and so as such, um, he's again just saying, like, this is a revelatory nature of, of my experience. 
And instead, he returned to Arabia, which is east of Damascus, to begin to preach. And so he's very important in telling this because he's saying like, hey, I actually have the credentials here to speak against the things of Pharisaical law because I was one. The next one is Paul's subsequent ministry, which is verses 18 to 24. So Paul then talks about how his ministry was underway for three years without any apostolic commissioning from Jerusalem. So they would have commissioned him typically or commissioned new apostles, uh, but he did it all on his own because he's Paul and Paul just does things on his own. (laughs) Um, But also, clearly, we see it's for a purpose. But Paul does comment on making Peter's acquaintance likely to learn more about the earthly ministry of Jesus firsthand from him. Uh, We find this in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 30. Um, If you can read those notes, you'll see a CF. A CF is like a short form to just say reference. So reference Acts 9, uh, verses uh, 26 to 30, and that talks about his, his uh, meeting with Peter, which, who he calls Cephas, because Paul was all about those original names. And in verses 19 to 20, it says he also met with James, who was the Lord's half-brother, um, and just to give some context, James eventually took over the leadership of the Galatian church from Peter himself, um, and so he's saying like, hey, I met Peter, who's currently leading this church. I met James, who's like his understudy, who's going to eventually lead this church. And so uh, I know these people um, were together. They told me about who Jesus was. This is the gospel that I'm beginning to share. But basically, the importance of Paul including uh, all of this subsequent ministry, which kind of seems like he's just kind of like talking about his life and giving you his resume and CV. Um, But again, it's to give a historical verification viability of his gospel to the Galatians and to the Judaizers. So he's giving kind of like his street cred, so to speak, of um, why he's able to bring this gospel in the first place, because the Judaizers and the Galatians were beginning to discredit him in terms of an apostle and even just somebody who believes in the gospel itself. So that's chapter one. We made it through. Crash right through that first chapter. Um, Any questions about what I've said or about what was discussed? Any feedback, pushback, disagreement, questions? Yeah, that's an interesting interesting parallel that um, the disciples would have spent those three years with Jesus' earthly ministry, of which Paul was not a part of. He was actually persecuting. But then Paul says he was gone for three years, um, and he kind of had his journey with the Lord too. That's an interesting parallel that I've never seen before, that I've never noticed. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so I want to give us just a couple minutes for you guys to write down for yourselves a very, like, short and and wide um, summary of chapter one. So I'm not going to give you any of it because um, I may have different things that I want to remember thematically than you do. And so this is our chance to zoom out, again, to have that very um, broad sense of retention so that you can reference. So write, I'm going to give you guys just a couple minutes to write down Uh, a couple of notes that you have that you want to remember in terms of Galatians 1. So we're going to jump into chapter 2 here, um, where Paul goes back to Jerusalem. So he's like, hey guys, I didn't go to Jerusalem at first, but now he did. So due to the chronology of the letter to the Galatians being written likely in AD 47 to 48, uh, this visit that Paul references at the beginning of chapter 2 was not to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. It was actually his famine relief visit in Acts 11 verses 27 to 30. Um, In verses 2 to 3, it kind of explains it. It The purpose of the visit as famine relief stems from the prophecy of Agabus in Acts 11 27, which he, he says is a revelation. So this revelation was that there was an incoming famine, and so the Jewish church was going to be in need, and so Paul visited Jerusalem at that time. And so Paul is referring actually to two meetings here, one public and one private. Um, And in these meetings, the emphasis of his proclamation of the gospel was affirmed. So he goes to Jerusalem at this moment of Agabus, uh, having this moment where he wants to make sure that uh, the Jerusalem church was going to be fed. And as a result, Paul visits them, and kind of affirms his gospel and his idea to go bring the gospel to not just Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well. And Paul makes note in this moment that circumcision was not forced upon Titus. 
And he makes that uh, note because it emphasizes the leader's endorsement of Paul's gospel. So he's saying, like, this is going to be going to the Gentile believers who don't need to convert to Judaism before they convert to Christianity. And so as a result of that, as a result of Paul making his case, uh, they don't ask that Titus is uh, circumcised so that he would then begin to follow Jewish law and be like culturally Jewish, so to speak. And so they endorse his gospel through that, and Paul makes note of that. Uh, in verses 4 to 5, uh, we see linked to the issue of Titus, Paul makes mention of some unscrupulous individuals, that's a good word, unscrupulous, uh, who created conflict. So the language here betrays their malicious intent. He uses words like secretly. Uh, they slipped in. They spied out our freedom. Yet in all of those moments where they came to try and malign the gospel that he was bringing, Paul stood firm in his commitment to the gospel. Um, and this is important because, again, like he believes that this gospel is the true one. And he's making this, I think, as a little bit of a jab, uh, because this is not going to be the case with Peter, where Peter does capitulate in a later part of chapter 2. And so I think he's beginning to set the stage for that moment and also kind of like jabbing, giving a jab to Peter a little bit. Um, because the core issue that he has in this letter, in the moment where he goes to Jerusalem, is preserving the truth of the gospel. Again, this is like such a big theme. Um, and I think that sometimes we can take a big defense of a lot of things that are not important. And I think that we can sometimes be like afraid of defending the gospel, um, particularly to even like people among us who are believers, because we're, we're wanting to be thoughtful and kind and caring, um, which is important. But Paul has such a, a, a big value on preserving the truth of the gospel that he's going to do it um, in a way that's firm and, and that's kind still and that brings restoration, but that does stay true to the gospel because he knows that's central. Uh, in verse 6, those who, who were in leadership in Jerusalem, um, whose positions didn't intimidate Paul because Paul is Paul, um, added nothing to his gospel. So he visits these people in Jerusalem, those who had authority, and they add nothing to his gospel. They say, like, this is sufficient. The inference here is there was no lack in his teaching. And he says, God shows no partiality. And that's in a broad sense. We see some of that partiality that God doesn't show. We see that in James, in his letter. Um, but in this particular meaning, he means that God shows no partiality to those in leadership, but also to the Jews over the Gentiles. Because there is beginning to be uh, this attitude that those who are Jewish converts to Christianity were somehow like better or, or more uh, favored Christians than the Gentile converts, because they were, you know, the Jews were God's people all before that time, before Jesus came. And so they were kind of the like super Christians, and the Gentiles were kind of like the secondary ones. And so Paul is saying here, like, God's showing no partiality. You know, there's no, like, the leadership, those who are in leadership have no more importance or favor from God than, the, than others. The Jews don't have any more favor than the Gentiles as well. And here, Paul's focus on his defense of the gospel is to fight against a church divided into two irreconcilable halves, the Jewish half and the Gentile half. And so as much as he's defending the gospel, he's also wanting this to be, the church to be a place of unity, um, where there isn't this secondary and primary Christians, where it would split the church in half. And so he's trying to preserve the unity of the church within this as well. And then in verses 7 to 10, we have the outcome of those two gatherings that he had in Jerusalem. Uh, it's the affirmation that God's grace had been given to Paul, which we see in verse 9. And what Paul is meaning here in terms of the affirmation of God's grace is the gift and authority of his apostleship. So that his gift of apostleship, like that's the outcome of this gathering, is the, um, the permission from, from those in Jerusalem to, to walk in that apostleship. But like he's going to say, primarily actually came from God first. There's the affirmation that this outcome of this grace was the entrusting of the gospel message to Paul for the Gentiles. And we can really um, miss this importance because we live in thousands of years of the gospel message already be given, being given to Gentiles. But this would have been like revolutionary and transformative at that time. Because, um, and this is much of what Romans talks about as well, is that Jewish people thought that they would be the only people that would receive the, the salvation from the Messiah. And yet we see that Paul is bringing this to the Gentiles. And so this would have been transformative for the culture at the time. 
Um, and we can sometimes miss the, like, the depth and the impact of that because we live in that world of the gospel being open to the Gentiles. Um, this paralleled the same trust granted to Peter for the Jews. And so there's this, again, showing of no partiality. And then there's affirmation by the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Now, by granting welcome and fellowship to Paul, and we see also Barnabas was with him, um, this at once signifies that Paul's on equal footing with them. So it's not, again, like the Jerusalem church is like the super church and everybody else are like the second church. Uh, they're on the same level as each other. Um, he also then, in that same sentence, undercuts the Judaizers' appeal to James, Peter, and John as somehow, again, having greater authority than Paul. So he's saying here, you know, we have the same authority, both given by God. Peter goes to the Jews, and that's his kind of specific calling in terms of spreading the gospel. I'm going to the Gentiles. They're just as important and the same. And then finally, the outcome of the gathering is there's a request that Paul and the Gentile mission under his authority don't forget to care for their Jewish brothers and sisters in a practical way by providing famine relief, which is the reason for Paul's visit there. And so Paul says, yeah, we're going to do it. Paul actually leads an incredible um, fundraising campaign that he then sends to the Jerusalem church because they're in tremendous need. And so he, we see in scripture that he does actually commit to that. Um, even though, even, which is very kind and gracious of him because the whole Jewish church, Jewish Christian church is like, we don't believe in you. We don't believe that you're going to do that. We don't even really believe your authority. And yet, please make sure that you consider us as we affirm your, your apostolic authority. And he does uh, because Paul sees the unity that, of God's church as more important than like the human divisions that sometimes can happen. Um, and so he, he does end up doing that. So, he brings his defense of the gospel. It's approved to be able to be spread to the, the Gentiles by the Jerusalem church. His apostolic authority is affirmed, which it already was affirmed by God, but he wanted to go through all the right ways. So just when we had it all sorted out, we don't. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. So we see here that Paul talks about... Um, the circumcision party, the fear of the circumcision party, which is an unfortunate name to call yourself. Uh, but the circumcision that Paul describes here stands in stark contrast to the agreement reached between Paul and the Jerusalem elders. So he's like, hey, I, I just showed you, Galatians, that all of this was approved and good, and yet this party is sent here that is in stark contrast to what we just agreed at in Jerusalem. So in verse 11, Paul introduces a scenario. Um, and he's unfortunately forced to confront Peter because his behavior violated his commitment to Paul. So this is the scenario which we see in verses 12 to 14. So Peter was in Antioch for a time, which is contained in the, the province of Galatia, and he was enjoying fellowship with Gentile believers. You know, P Peter believes in Jesus, is free to do that. He is not restricted by food laws. We see that happen in Acts. So he's enjoying fellowship with Gentile believers. He's eating whatever he wants. So he is perhaps compromising, air quotes, Jewish food laws at this point, which we can see in referencing in verse 14. So this group of individuals, these Judaizers, arrive from Jerusalem, and their mandate is likely to investigate the Jewish believers and their commitment not to the gospel, but to the law. So Peter and the others, including Barnabas, were intimidated by that. You know, these were important officials. This would be like if uh, our district office came to our church to, like, check in on us in a very, like, official, particular way. Like, we probably would be, like, it's a moment. And so uh, Peter and the others were tip Now, our district office would not do that because they're not trying to do what the Judaizers did, just to be clear for all of you online people. Um, but they came, and they were intimidated. And so in their intimidation, they capitulated to eating only with Jewish believers. So they left the Gentile believers and the Gentile converts, and instead they only ate with the Jewish people, the Jewish converts, which would have been, again, a moment of division, a moment of uh, partiality that they were showing in this moment. And so Paul, um, unfortunately, calls him out on that. And so we can see that, and we can be like, oh, like, is that the way to go? Um, but I think in this particular way, Paul calling out Peter in public, and also, unfortunately, secondarily in this letter, uh, he does that because what Peter is doing is not a matter of private correction that he needs to bring. It's not that Peter is violating a private sin that he needs to go to him to like bring restitution to and, and, and um, bring re reconciliation to. It's a public thing that he's doing. And so because this was such a threat to the gospel, 
which was fledgling at the time. We need to remember that, that the gospel was fledgling. And so it was almost uh, needed to be kind of, de- not debated, but, um, oh, what's the word I'm trying to say? Need to be defended uh, a little bit more because it's fledgling, it's new, it's just beginning um, in, in its spread. And so he does this publicly. So he unfortunately publicly calls out Peter uh, because he's capitulating to the Judaizers and then bringing division uh, to the Gentile believers. And so it's important to think for us to consider like in our actions, in our expression of faith, like we need to be people who are welcoming people to our table, not having people be excluded from it, both within and without our church. And so uh, I think that's just an important thing for us to remember is like around our table, who's there? Who's around the table of our community? Is it people who are only going to be exactly like us? Or are we inviting people in who, who bring a sense of um, color and diversity and, uh, and background to our lives? Because I think that actually is God's intent for his people. And so um, in that capitulation, they ended up excluding a large group of people. So I gave you a handout if you came, when you came in. And if you did not get one, my apologies. Uh, there is one in the foyer for you. But there is a spectrum of belief by early Christians uh, of the believer's relation to the Mosaic law. So I don't have any, like I haven't given you, this is not going to be on the screen, but you have a sheet in front of you. And I think it's helpful for us to read and understand um, because there is a lot going on in the book of Galatians. Like we have, uh, we have people who are still uh, converts of, or culturally Jewish. We have those who've converted from Judaism to a Jewish Christianity. We have Gentiles who are professing uh, believers, and then we have Gentiles who are converting. So there's like a lot of characters going on. And as we see, there's a spectrum of belief in what our relation to the Mosaic law is. Um, and so I think it's important for us to like understand this because it helps us to kind of delineate what was going on in the situation. Um, so I, if we had more time, I would go through it all. Um, but I think it's important just to, to have and for you to digest because it does speak to some of the things that Paul will speak to. Um, and it does kind of give us a, a grand scope of all of those things, whether that was, you know, the law had no claim on people's lives, uh, whether that, you know, Paul, Paul in his writings would say in that second one that Christians are not under the law covenant, even though they're certainly not free from God's demands. So kosher food laws, uh, which would be Jewish, could be observed in circumcision practice as pastoral wisdom dictates. So when we think of that, it reminds me of uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians 8, where there are those who are going to be strong Christians and those who are weak Christians, not in terms of their faith or their literal strength, um, but for those who have a conscience against certain things that are not uh, foundational to like your faith. So for instance, Paul is eating, or people are eating uh, meat sacrificed to idols, and it's causing them to fall into idolatry because their conscience doesn't permit them to do that. They're like sinning against their conscience. And so Paul says like, I will never eat meat sacrificed to idols again if I'm causing another brother to stumble. And so this is the beginning of that kind of, um, like that's a hint of that that we see in 1 Corinthians. And so you can practice those things in as much as they don't affect that you know that your uh, faith or that your salvation is by faith alone. So that's where that pastoral or that uh, wisdom dictates it. Uh, But then we have other kind of understandings of believers' relation to the law. Um, And to be clear, I did pull this exactly out of the ESV Study Bible, uh, which is a great resource, so would recommend. Um, But I pulled this out of there, so this is not my own writing or my own research. This is straight out of the ESV Study Bible. All right, so we're going to jump into what the true gospel is. So Paul has set the stage. He has talked about his apostolic authority. He's talking about how it's been approved. He's talked about how he is permitted both by God and by man to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and how it's beginning to be threatened by these Judaizers who are coming in, who are unscrupulous people, who are beginning to to share and and permit this false gospel um, that had people falling back into uh, salvation by works and not by faith. So he's like, all right, we set the stage here. Let's talk about what the true gospel actually is, which is not going to be just found in chapter 2. It's found all through the entirety of Galatians. But uh, in, chap- in verses 15 to 16, uh, Paul's dialogue with Peter continues here, and he's appealing to their joint experience as Christians from a Jewish background. 
So the new relationship they enjoy with God is based upon faith in Christ. That's it. Not on performing the works of the law, like circumcision, holy days, food laws. And so what he's making clear here from the context of his argument is that if the Galatians were to adopt the teaching of the Judaizers, it would be attempting to gain justification through the law. And so he's beginning to unpack the sense of understanding of justification. And so he kind of begins to answer the question, why is it that the works of the law cannot justify? Well, he says that sinful humans could, not, could simply not perform enough works of the law to be justified. Um, because if you're guilty on one point, you're guilty on them all. So he's saying that nobody was able, even, even Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the one who's advancing beyond everybody else, couldn't hold uh, couldn't perform enough works of the law to be justified because he was guilty on one point, and so he was guilty on them all. And so the application really of Galatians is simply this, which is simple and yet profound. Do we rest our identity in the person of Christ or in our works so that we can earn something? Because Paul says the, the clock can't be turned back to the era of the law, which he says is the Torah. And so then he says it's wrong for Jewish authority to impose circumcision on the Gentiles, for Peter to withdraw from the Gentile brothers, and for the agitators to insist that the Galatians submit to the law. So he's beginning to bring correction to some of this false gospel that was being shared. In verses 17 to 18, Paul is discussing the experience of those Jewish believers who, like Peter, are not strictly adhering to the law. He's saying that they had become like Gentiles, um, and the Jews would still have seen them as sinners, which would have been offensive, um, because it just would have been. And so he, there's this question, like, does, does this mean that allegiance to Christ is causing them to sin against the law? Um, and this is kind of the perspective of the Judaizers, that you're beginning to sin against this important thing that God had uh, ordained, that he had written, that he had given to Moses, that he had uh, fleshed out in, in um, Deuteronomy and, and in Exodus. And so this is a perspective that these agitators were bringing. Paul's response is, God forbid, or, or what we see as meganoita, that's the Greek uh, words there. And that's his like most scandalized phrase that he uses, like, let it, let it not be. It's like this crazy expression that he says, meganoita, it's like a big one. He says, God forbid that that is true. He says in verse 18, in fact, Jewish believers are not sinful in the abandonment of the law, which he means dietary restrictions and something like circumcision, they're actually transgressors if they attempt to rebuild that which that Christ has set them free from, which set Christ set them free from their allegiance to law as a means of justification. In verse 19, Paul says that he has died to the law and instead lives for Christ. So he has been released from the authority of the law of Moses. And you cannot rebuild that authority again because the authority of Jesus then supersedes all that was there before. Now we'll see uh, how, what that means in practice as we continue through Galatians, because some people would read that and just throw out all the law and say, I can do whatever I want because I live in, like, the spirit of grace. And he brings some, like, clarification to that, which we'll see later. Uh, but in verse 20, uh, he talks about the new nature of the believer, that crucifixion denotes the transfer from one state to another. The life is now lived by faith in Christ. And so it's this full transfer. It's not like a simple adjustment it's a full transfer. And then he finishes chapter 2 uh, by saying that the work of the Judaizers is now seen for what it is, which is nullifying the grace of God, which is, again, strong. Because if righteousness could come through the law, then the natural question would be, well, then what is the purpose, or what was the purpose for Christ's death? So he's saying, like, hey, People, like, if we could do it by the law, then why, would Christ, why did Christ die? He, it actually, he said, like, Jesus would have died in vain if that was the case. And so he's saying, like, if, if righteousness comes through the law, then, like, his death has no purpose. There was no reason for him to come. There was no reason for him to usher in that new covenant. Um, he died in vain. And so he's beginning to kind of unravel um, some of the things that had begun to grip the Galatian church. Now, it can be easy for us to add things. Um, I think that what Galatians says over and over is the gospel plus nothing. Um, and it can be easy to add things to it. And I think that, you know, God, of course, has grace for those moments. 
Um, God cares much more about uh, that gospel being preserved than any of us ever could as well. And by his spirit of grace and by his spirit of truth, he does reveal that to us. Um, now, there are moments where we need to take a, take a stand on that um, and where we need to be people who live by the true gospel. Because like I said, and like we'll read later in Galatians, is that when we try to impose uh, other things to save, sanctify uh, people, that it doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to them flourishing. It doesn't lead to people uh, experiencing goodness and growth. It actually begins to, to put a, uh, a, a burden on their shoulders, and it begins to um, cause them to feel weighted down by things that they shouldn't be, because the, the gospel is about liberating them, is about freedom uh, from those things that should burden us. And so that's kind of the beginning of what Paul begins to unravel. And he starts off strong, and the thing about Paul is he starts off strong and he begins to bring um, a sense of resolution, a sense of hope, a sense of excitement, a sense of practicality. Um, but Paul's a man of theology, and so he likes to unpack and, and uh, like peel back all of the layers before he kind of reforms it back into what he means. And so um, we start off strong. Paul started off strong in this letter. Um, but I'm so excited because it, as much as starts off strong, there's an incredible message of hope in Galatians, even though so far it's like, whoa, this is like really intense for us. Um, and he's quite strong in this letter, but he's also quite strong in his belief of the grace of God, in his belief of um, how believers can walk in step with the Spirit and how that brings life to themselves and life to other people. And so this isn't all doom and gloom. We'll get there. We'll get to the life and excitement of it. Well, to close off our time together, I just want to read to you actually from Luke uh, chapter 4, because I think it encapsulates so beautifully the gospel um, and exactly who that gospel is about. Uh, it's Luke chapter 4, and we're starting at 17. It says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, who is Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all, the synagogue, of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Such a beautiful picture of the freedom that Jesus brings to us, um, the freedom that we get to experience that Jesus has come with the Spirit of God on him to proclaim liberty, liberty, to set the captives free, and, and to bring the good news to the poor. Um, and so that is truly what Jesus came for. That is the gospel and the good news that we have. And so we're going to continue to journey together in learning what that liberty and freedom that Jesus meet, brings means um, by looking at what Paul says as he unpacks um, what that means in his, in his letter to the Galatians.